Happy Father's Day. This morning, we're going to take a look at a warning that uh, Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 23. So if you want to turn there, um, we're going to do that. Matthew chapter 23. Excuse me. We're going to start in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not uh, to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and this Father's Day. We thank you for your word, Lord, that is, uh, it's not just some book of good teachings and morals, but it's actually alive and active. And if we would read it and we would practice what it says, you'll lead us into life, not only in eternal life, but in this life here. So Lord, we ask that your work, your word, uh, would have its way in our hearts and minds. In your name, amen. So before we uh, can jump right into this teaching, I need to lay some groundwork. So I'm going to move a little fast because I realize I have a a lot of groundwork to cover for us to understand this. Um, And I was going to cut some of it out, but I don't think I cut any of it out without you getting a full understanding. So we're going to lay some groundwork. But there seems to be a conflict here. Uh, at least for me. And I read through this and I hear uh, uh, Jesus um, chastising, really, the, the leaders of the law and the Pharisees. And then he says this statement like, don't call anybody on earth father. But then later on in, light, in Scripture, he talks about the need to honor fathers and mothers. And give honor to those who teach you and these kinds of things. So it almost says, Jesus, what is he saying? Why, why does there seem to be like this double um, instruction? And so it's necessary for us to understand what's happening here in order to, uh, to come to the realization that God in this specific place is not telling you to not honor your fathers. So let's look into it. Through, throughout the Bible, uh, God has many names, Okay, And it's not that the people were confused about who God was. It's that uh, the culture and society of that time, somebody was named something based on the essence or characteristics of who they were. Okay, So when you see God throughout the scriptures being called different things, it's because in that moment they're identifying that aspect of God for who he is. So, um, for instance, let's give you some examples. In the Old Testament, the two popular words uh, for God were Elohim, uh, which is the, the, the generic word for God, it's tw- almost 2,600 times in the Old Testament. And it just means mighty, strong creator. So when it says 
uh, when God created the heavens and earth, it's Elohim created. And it's just this aspect of God that's like strong and powerful and creative and those kinds of things. And then we have uh, another term for God that's called, you might have, I'm sure you've heard the term Yahweh. In the 1500s, we, we changed the pronunciation of that to be more English, and sometimes you've heard that term said Jehovah. But Jehovah and Yahweh are the same thing. Um, it's just different pronunciations. So it's, that name is 60, over 6,200 times in Scripture Yahweh is, is spoken of. And Yahweh is just the proper name for God. Like, my proper name is Steve. Right? So whatever your proper name is, that was God's proper name. That distinguished him from any other uh, gods who were being worshipped in the world at that time or even in this time. He, that, no, that's Yahweh. Oh, that's the proper name of the Hebrew God. And so that was, uh, so when you see Yahweh or Jehovah mentioned, uh, it's the proper name for God. But then you've seen things like, um, uh, we, we would say in English, like Jehovah Jireh, right? Jehovah Nisi. These are all aspects of who God is in his names. But it's not really until the New Testament that Jesus begins to call God Father. And he encourages his disciples to do the same. Look in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. He's teaching them how to pray. He says, this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus himself refers to God as Father lots of times, uh, as Father God. And, um, and his disciples begin to do the same. And it's this revelation of God as Father that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, important um, to know and keep in mind that God is revealed in lots of other names and ways in Scripture. Okay, Father is just one of them, but he's not just Father. He's also revealed as a judge. Um, and so... Uh, it's important to remember that these revelations of who God is in Scripture, uh, never are, they're never in conflict with each other, uh, which, is in, which is hard for us to understand um, because the revelations of who God is, the name isn't just, they're not just naming God, it's who God is. It's, it's his character. And so when we say God is Father, he's a father. When we say God is a judge, he's a judge. And he's able to hold both of those in perfect balance um, without compromising the integrity of either one. Which is really hard for us to understand. Because if you happen to be a person whose father was, uh, was a judge, uh, you might go, I love the idea of father as a judge because my dad was a pushover and let me get away with anything. Or maybe not. Maybe the other extreme, like, man, my, I don't like the idea of God being a my father being a judge because my dad was mean and hard to the core and whatnot. But keep in mind that God does those things, uh, holds them perfectly, which is something we are unable to do and most of us even to understand that that's possible. Um, but he does. But today we're going to look at God as Father. So if you're like, hey, but what about God is this? Yep, aware of those things. Um, he is those things too. He's not just Father. So this leads us... Um, Something else that we need to keep in mind, and that's this, that God defines fatherhood. Okay? And you say, well, why is that important? It's important because we don't look, uh, Jesus didn't give us uh, 
the term father for God so that we could understand who God is by looking at our fathers. We don't look at fatherhood to understand God. We look at God to understand fatherhood. And this is really important because there's a lot of people in this world who have a hard time with God because they look at God through their father. Some people were blessed to have great dads who were like, man, if, if my, you know, who represented God very well. But that's not the majority of people. The majority of people had fathers who did not represent God well. And because of that, sometimes when we look at our dads and we say, well, if God's a father, I don't necessarily know if I, if I like God because my dad was not a good father or my, my father was non-existent or my father abandoned me or my father beat me or my father fill in the blank. And so it's important to keep in mind that uh, uh, God defines fatherhood. And it's, uh, I felt that really strong when I was studying because uh, for years, uh, my dad and I have connected now, but my dad and mom were separated, and I didn't see my dad until I was already married and had kids. And so it was really hard for me trying to understand who God is through the lens of father without a father around to even look at. And so I remember wrestling with that, like, God, how can I understand you when I don't even have a father to look at? And he's like, well, don't look at dads to understand me. You look at me and who I am to understand what a dad should be. And that's, uh, honestly, for me, in raising my kids, uh, I look at God as father and say, you know, how can I be the best father? Well, God, how do you father me? And that's how I need to father my children. And so, um, please keep that in mind. If that's you today where you've struggled with understanding that God loves you and these kinds of things or God is close to you because your natural biological father was not those things, that's not who God is. Your, 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 your father just fell short. Um, amen? Amen. So, let's look at God as revealed as father. Um, what's the biblical definition of father? Whether, whether it relates to God or it relates to a natural person in the in biblical story. And it's this. It's one who imparts life and is committed to it. Okay? We live in an age where there's, there's a lot of imparting life, but not a commitment to that life. Right? Like, we love, we, uh, you know, a lot of men love the pleasure of the moment, but they don't like what comes with it long term. So you can father a child, that's anybody can father, a ch- any, any male can father a child. But not every male is committed to that life. And so the biblical definition of father was somebody who can impart life uh, culturally back they believe that life came through the Father, that the Father imparted life through biology and science. Now we know it takes two. Um, but it's still the Father who determines the sex, which is interesting. Anyway, we, that's not where we're going today. Um, they, culturally, they believe that the Father is who imparted life uh, and, and sowed life for it to happen. But then that Father needed to be committed to that life and provide and all those kinds of things. So... Let's look at some scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, God imparted life, right? And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. I love that one of the songs they picked this morning 
had these very exact words in it. I was like, yes, I love it when God does that. Because they had a general idea. I I talked to Jacob, who's the leader, and I said, hey, this is generally where I'm going in my sermon. And that's all I gave him. And so they picked some songs that actually have some of the scriptures I'm sharing today in it. I was like, see, God's, that's how we know that God is alive and active. Those things aren't coincidence. Anyway, so the Lord God formed the man, created it, but didn't just create, then breathed actual life into mankind. So he imparted life uh, into to us and the world around us. And then in John 3.16, we see this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal here we see the commitment to that life that he created. So we see God as Father revealed in that he created and imparted life. And then throughout Scripture, we see that God has this invested commitment to the life he's created. And that even when this life he created set itself on a course for destruction to where it would, it would cease to exist and experience death, he stepped in and said, I'm committed to this and I've got to provide a way. So we see this God as Father actually is in the Old Testament, just not as revealed. He was sent, so we had life. Let me ask you this question. Whose resources were used to create life? Whose resources were used to create life? God's. Scripture tells us that God was given nothing. He was given no raw ingredients. He was given no pattern. He was given no no suggestions, no anything. Every single thing, all of life, came from God. His own resources. What do we mean by resources? Resources aren't just like building blocks. Resources are skills. Resources are positions. Resources are material things. Resources are power. That's anything that you have is a resource, Right? And so God used everything. He used his own intellect. He used his own place with his power and authority. He, he manufactured his own materials. Like every single thing that brought life came at God's expense. His resources. Let me ask you this. Um, I'm sorry. God is called Father because he created life. He created physical life, he created emotional life, he created spiritual life, he created eternal life. He created all of these things from his own resources. You gave nothing to God in order for him to create life. Keep that in mind. That's true for your emotional life and your spiritual life as well. It all comes from God. And he's committed to that life he created. He said, never will I leave you or forsake you. Where two or more gathered, there I am in the midst of you. Like, God is committed to the life that he's created. So, I'm a thinker. I think a lot. And so my question is like, okay, God, why did you create life? And there's some, um, there's lots of reasons that people say out there. And some of them are really terrible. In my opinion. Okay? Like, he was bored. Like, that's, that's, that's not a... God, God is eternal, meaning God has no beginning and has no end. He has always existed. Okay? 
our, our human existence on this life, I know people argue about the dates, but if you go back uh, for, by biblical accounts, people have lived on the planet like 6,000 years, six to 8,000 years. So even if it was double that, let's say the Bible's off a little bit, some numbers this, and it's, people have been around for 30,000 years, let's say. 30,000 years in light of eternity is nothing. It's like a blink of your, yours, mine, eyes. That's, and so what, what did God do with all the other time? Was he lonely? Was he bored? Twiddling his thumbs? I got to find something. No, God is self-sufficient. God doesn't need anything else. He doesn't, he's happy within himself. He's not bored with himself. He's, 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 he exists perfectly. He does not need any of us. He doesn't need the creation. He doesn't need the world. He doesn't even need people to praise and honor him. If we say that God created so that somebody would praise him, God is very narcissistic. God doesn't need your praise. You're like, God, pastor, like you're blowing my theology, everything I was taught in Sunday school. Like, think about it. If God is self-sufficient and doesn't need us, why did he create us? We're going to answer that question. How many people here consider themselves um, created? Let me explain what I mean by this. All of us create to some degree. Maybe out of necessity for work or our home life or, you know, I can create a budget because I have to, right? But there are some people in life that they're just creative. Artists, we might call them artists, musicians, um, uh, people who just, they're always something creative is coming. They have to paint. They have to draw. They have to write. They have to cook. They have to, they're always with a guitar or a keyboard, and they're just like, oh, listen to this new tune. Like, like they're just creatives, right? Anybody here, you think you fall into that category? My wife is definitely one of them. There's some of you, right? You're just creatives. It's just who you are. Um, let me ask you this. Why, why do you create? You have to. If I define away from the back, I have to. There's just something in you that you don't feel yourself if you're not making time to create. Right? You just feel off. Like, I gotta create. And if you're a true creative, you, you, I mean, you enjoy the fact that people might enjoy your creation, but you don't create in order for other people to be happy with your, whatever you've created. Most creatives have a closet full of paintings or musics written or recipes or writings that no one will ever see or ever read or ever partake or ever enjoy because it's just, they're just creating. They got to. It's something they have to do. It's who they are. And then there's two motivations for people who are creative to create. One is for others, the will and desire of others, meaning this, um, Maybe, I want, maybe I'm a, a musician, and I want fame, and I need money, so I'll write music with other people in mind so that they'll buy it or show up at my shows or those kinds of things. And you keep in consideration the, the, uh, the palette of whoever it is you're, you're targeting. If it's, if it's food, um, like if you've been to a, a Chinese restaurant in America, it's not real Chinese food, Right? Because they're creating Chinese food for the American palate. <clears throat> so 
a true Chinese chef who has to cook Chinese-American food is not real happy because it's not real Chinese food. But they do it in order so you'll come and buy their food and they can earn a living. So all creatives in some sense have the same thing, whether they want fame or power or need money, uh, they're hired to do a certain thing. They're creating for the sake of other people's thoughts. They have to consider the parameters of, the instructions given. Like Michelangelo, when he had to paint the, the roof of the Sistine Chapel, like he was given... Even though he created that, he was given the parameters with which he had to create that. So that's creating for other people. And then there's the creating for yourself. Right? Where there's zero parameters. And you just sit down with whatever materials or whatever you are within yourself, and you just, whoever you are, just flows into your work. And you don't think about anybody else. Just you. If you're creative in there... How many of you have ever felt that or experienced that in your creating? You just sit down and you're like, man, this, I don't have to think about anybody else. Just who I am. I'm just pouring who I am into whatever it is. You're creating, you're creating for yourself, right? For, so, let's ask the question again. Why did God create? Scripture says that he's a father, which means he creates life and is committed to that life that he's created. So did God create with somebody else in mind and somebody else's will and somebody else's thoughts given a certain set of parameters, or did God create for himself? Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So God, saying, everything that exists was created by, uh, by him. Whether it's things you see, whether it's structures, whether it's patterns, whether it's way of thinking, everything was created by God. And it ends with this. All things have been created through him and for him. What does that mean? Everything that God created, he created for himself. He had zero parameters from anybody else. Nobody gave him a pattern. Nobody said, hey, this is, uh, this is what we need. And this is, you got to consider this person's palette. you got to consider the future. you got to consider this. you got to consider that. God, as a creator, poured himself into his creation. And he just, he just created for the pleasure of creating. Isn't that fantastic? Every person who is a creative person says, man, that's the kind of creating I love to do. Right? So, man, I love it. I don't have to think about anybody else but just for my own self. And some versions say for him, through him, and unto him, for his own pleasure. They use different terminology. It was for his own pleasure he engaged in the act of creating because it's who he is. He can't be true to who he is unless he's creating and he's revealed as a creator. It's not just something God does. It's who he is. Some of us have a hard time understanding that. Some of you who are natural creators, you get it. You're like, yes, I understand that. And then Colossians comes and says, God didn't create with anybody else in mind but himself. He said, I'm just going to pour all of who I am into creation, which is why we have scriptures like this. Psalms 19, 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God. Let's just pause for a minute. What is the glory of God? What's the glory of Mozart? 
his musical creation, right? So what's the glory of God? All of his creation. All of the created work. His, his, his work, the things that reveal his character and his essence. Or he has this, this amazing creation of peace where we look at it and we enjoy it and we're just wowed. I know, there are some creative people that things flow out of them and you're awed. I don't know if you've ever been around someone like that. Like, um, there are some music groups throughout history who have sat down and like a half hour banged out a song that becomes like a classic. And they're just like, oh, hey, I got this little riff, man. And the guy on the drum's like, yeah, 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 I like it. And they just, next thing you know, it's like a hit. You're like, how does that happen? It just comes out of their head. It's creative. Now imagine a God who created that. Things just come. Like he just poured himself in. And so his work, when we stand and we see the purity of God's work, and we go, uh, and you stand and you see the sunset over the mountain ridge, and you're looking, you're like, whoa. Like that's declaring God's glory. He created that. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. The words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. And then Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made so that people are without excuse. When God has poured himself in his creation, you get an essence of who God is, his glory and his majesty through looking at the amazement of his creation. My wife is amazed by the tiny stuff. If you follow her on Facebook or Instagram, she's constantly taking pictures of these flowers that are like as big as my pinky nail. And then she like zooms in and like focuses on the little insect inside that flower. And you're like, wow, that's kind of cool. And the deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper we go into God, into his creation, you're just wowed. Scientists are still wowed by DNA. My son sent me a link the other day of of, um, electromagnetic engineers discovered that every planet has its own sound. It's crazy. You can play the sounds of each of the planets. And it's like playing music. Like, how is that possible? Earth has its own sound. It declares the glory of God. The intricacies, the details, the majesty, the amazement, all of that declares the glory of God. It's through his work that he receives the honor and he receives the glory. Even his work on the cross brings him honor and glory. It's his work. So, let's, let's move on. What would anger an artist or creator the most? Yeah. This. Like, man, this is a nice... If I got this and I was like, hey, this is kind of cool. This is kind of cool. But, you know, I think the little guy, he needs a beard. He needs to be a reformed puppy. That one's for you, Sean. He's a reformed puppy. And, and 
and the duck, you know, he needs a he needs a hat. Yeah, 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 that's better. I don't like baseball, so let's let's, let's just screw up baseball. Just baseball. I don't know. Oh, and this isn't really a baseball bag. Let's make it a money bag. We gotta put, you know, we gotta put some some dollar signs. Okay. I like that work. That's better. How do you think the artist would feel who created that out of their own inspiration with no parameters? They poured themselves into that. And I'm like, it's nice, but. And then I say, oh, I think that looks better. Like, that's just, they'd be angry, right? Or, or if I came and I was like, huh, who's this person? No. Uh, scribble them. Steve. Steve did this painting. In the real world, we call this, putting my name on that, we call it plagiarism. Right? You'll get kicked out of school for that one, right? You guys are in school. What if you plagiarize people's work? You get a little reprimanded, you might lose a grade, but if you continue to do it, they're like, no, you're out of here. I mean, in school, they're like crazy. It's like, like one sentence, you don't give someone rec- recognition for it, or you get, I mean, it's, it's intense. If you plagiarize even a thought, I don't know if, right? You plagiarize thoughts of people. If you don't give them the credit that's theirs, you get penalized. It's, it's looked down on. We, we call it plagiarism. Scripture calls it idolatry. It's assigning somebody else credit, the honor, the praise, and the worship that somebody else deserved. So when we worship created things instead of the creator, it's idolatry because we're giving that credit for the life that we have instead of the true creator. And it angers him. Angers God as a creator. You're plagiarizing my stuff. Buddha didn't do this. Muhammad didn't do this. Evolution didn't do this. Or any of those other things that we give credit for and we praise that as, this is, look at this, this is amazing, so-and-so did this. Guy's like, that's plagiarism. Right? It's, a, it's idolatry. You're giving somebody honor and glory that's not theirs. It's mine. The second push, destroying it and altering it, that's called sin. When we take what God's thoughts and how God designed things and how God poured himself into that, and we say, you know what, God, I really don't like that. That's not the way we're, I want to do it. I don't like that you created that structure or that law of whatever. Um, I'm going to create my own. Yours, I'm going to take part of yours, and I'm going to take something else. I'm going to create my own thing. God's like, you're just, you're just defacing. You're defacing what I've created. In Scripture, we call that sin. In life, we call it marring or defacing. And like any true creative, he is passionate about restoring his work back to his original design and its original ownership. Just like hopefully your college campus is passionate about saying, no, the right owner needs to get credit for that. So God comes along and God, this is what God's about. God's like, no, 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 duck doesn't get a hat. That's not part of my work and my plan. And so every act that God goes and starts restoring back his thing, more and more and more of his glory is being revealed back. Don't you think he's passionate for that? <clears throat> Excuse me. He's passionate about restoring his work back to its original design. He's like, no, no, that's a ball bag, not a money bag, Steve. Come on. 
no, no, that's just graffiti, right? The puppy doesn't need a beard. I gave him just the right amount of hair he needs. You know, all these kinds of things. And as he restores his creation back to it, his glory gets restored. His honor becomes truly what it is. That the honor and the glory is going to the appropriate, appropriate place. And then his creation, as he created it, is restored back. Let's get back to the original scripture that we talked about. <clears throat> Jesus said this, everything. First of all, I, I ask God, like, of all the people groups in scripture, he's the harshest with the teachers of the law. He has so much grace for, like, adulterers, so much grace for murderers, so much grace for people who just set themselves against him. He's, like, loving them. Come to me, all you are this. And then the teachers of the law, he's like, vipers, dirty this. Like, just calling them out, and he's angry with them. Like, why, God? Like, why? He says, this is what he says. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, which is just what the robes what they wear. They make them wide and tassels on their garments long. Like, hey, look at me. Look, I'm real holy. I'm wearing the right stuff, and mine's better. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi with others. So what is, what is Jesus accusing them of? What is Jesus accusing them of? taking the glory and honor that God is due. Which, to be fair, everyone in the world does, to some extent, right? Which is part of my, I'm like, well, God, why are you so upset with them? Everyone, everyone's doing it. Everyone's sinners. Here's the deal. That the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were God's representatives to the people. It was their role to help facilitate a relationship between the people and with God. And they were using their position in that. They were using the resources that God had given them for their own honor and glory. I don't want you to raise hands, but think about fathers. Good fathers, bad fathers. Good fathers tend to be fathers who at their own expense and without thinking of themselves raise their families, sacrifice for their families, see that their families are growing and healthy and providing what, everything that they can do within their power, albeit sometimes imperfectly, to see that their families get a leg up in life or at least get set off on the right path. And then even after that, when you have adult children who call and they're like, hey, I'm struggling, can you help this and this? You're like, dad's like, yeah, I'm going to do everything I can to help you continue to succeed. Bad fathers tend to be fathers who use their families for their own glory. For their own healing. For selfish reasons. Those are fathers that their, their kids tend to leave the homes quickly. Who really don't like coming home for family vacations. Or special holidays. Because dad always, man, gets one over it. You know, gets a joke at my expense. Or... You know, he's 
makes me do a billion things at the house and fix stuff. Every time I come over, he's just using me for keep his house maintained. Like, never is imparting life into you. He's always taking from you. That's what the teachers of the law were doing. The place that God had given them, that he had invested into them and given them a place of position and, and power and these kinds of things, they were using that position to receive honor and glory for themselves instead of the God that they were serving. And God is passionate for his name. You will not plagiarize, especially the servant that I've asked to stand in between the gap between me and a world that doesn't know me to help facilitate this relationship. You're standing in the middle of that and taking all the honor and glory that I'm trying the people to see about me for yourself. You're stealing my name. You're marring my creation. And you're supposed to be the ones who are facilitating. You're supposed to be the fathers who don't use the positions and the places that God has given for your own personal glory and honor and and advancement, but you use those things that I've given you for the elevation of me and so others can come to know me and know my true glory and my true honor. They were standing in the way. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi. He's teaching the people. For you have one teacher and you are one brother's. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have our father and he is in heaven. What is he saying here? During that period of time, rabbi, teacher, father were, were terms of honor. Uh, we have similar, like in the church world, reverend, right? Reverend so-and-so. Although it shows an accomplishment, like uh, you went to school and you achieved a certain thing, when you insist on people calling you reverend, you're saying, I want you to honor the fact that I went to, did all the schooling. So somebody who is a rabbi, somebody who is a teacher, somebody, um, we, have, we have certain denominations of churches that require people to be called fathers. And it's not that they're an actual father, it's a term of, of um, honor, it's an honor. And so what he's saying is you're not to give the honor that is due God, the father, to other people. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, you know, you can't call your earthly father who gave you physical life Father, because, you know, you only have one Father. He's saying the honor and the glory that is due the Father in heaven is not to be given to anybody else. You have one Father that gets the honor and the glory. You have one rabbi. You have one teacher. He's going through the, 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 the honorific terms of that day, which was proved a point to them at the time. Because their society was no different than our society today. Everyone wanted the world to see them. Everyone's out working for their own glory. I mean, how many athletes do you see on the field who are just about themselves and making sure their numbers are up and they pound their chests and they're like, look at me and I'm so awesome. All of us are crying out in some way, some shape or form. See me? See me? Hey, look, I'm important too. And and you say, well, how is that... um, in the same category. I am important. You are important. But when you are using what God has given you to cry out to the world around you to see you, you're standing in the way of God's honor and glory. Because we are people who want as many people as possible to know and see God the Father, not you and me. 
It changes nobody's life if I'm honored and glorified. The only thing it changes in my life is I have extra money in my pocket. But I still die. The worms still eat my body. But when we use the resources that God has given us to make God visible to the world around us and His glory and His honor elevated, we're being servants, which is why He says this, Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. You say, well, pastor, it seems like a pie-in-the-sky kind of uh, thing. We all are broken. We all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. Here's the difference. When you realize and you take your faith back to Genesis chapter 1 instead of Genesis chapter 3, you say, what's the difference? In Genesis chapter 1, God said he created you and it was good. And you start to realize that, hey, I am God's creation. And he says in its original intent, I am awesome and I'm created, but sin has come along and sin has just marred me. But underneath that and without that, I'm inherently, God has given me value. He sees me. And God wants to come along and he wants me to follow him and he wants me to uh, give him the honor and glory he's doing. As he's working in my life, more and of the true essence of who he's created me begins to show forth. And God is then more glorified through my life. Because I am good. He sees me as good, as valuable. When we start our theology with Genesis chapter 3, that, that you are terrible. Now, they're both true statements. With all of this sin, it's terrible. It's marred. God looks at it and goes, that is not what I created. It's ugly in his sight. It's offensive. He's like, that's nowhere near how I created things. It's not how, how to think, not how to live, not how to anything. So it's a true statement. And guess what? This painting can do nothing to remove these black marks. It can do nothing on its own to, to remove the sin, to remove the marring. Something external has to act upon it to remove that. That is our faith and our belief that underneath the marring and behind it is something of value and that's good and he's committed to and he's come to restore. And we can't do anything about it. We have to ask uh, God, Jesus Christ, into our life so the Father can come along and he can remove the marring from us so that we are again revealing his glory and his majesty in our life. That's the gospel message. But if you start at... Genesis chapter 3, you don't believe that underneath there's anything good. That you have no value. That you're just some project that God has to work on because he, that's who he is and he, has to, he can't be contrary to himself. That's not true. When we start at the fact that God the Father sees us and God loves us and he's committed to the life that he ha you, uh, you have in him, you can then submit yourself you don't, have, you don't need the rest of the world to see you. I don't need my own glory and honor. Because God the Father, who created me, who imparted life to me, he sees me. And he loves me. 
And he's bringing me through a process to restore me back to how he created me and to where I'm revealing his majesty and his greatness to the world around me. And so therefore within me, I really only want to be pleasing to one. That's the difference. So your ability to carry out and not be the Pharisee is found only in your restored relationship to God the Father and understand that he loves you, that he's committed to you, that he's a good father, he loves you, and he wants to continue this life into eternal life with you. It's this understanding that releases us to take a humble approach and be like a servant and use our resources for God's glory and his honor so that he can be restored and returned back to its right. Everything we see can be returned to its rightful ownership. And when we do that, we take great pleasure in that as God is more revealed to the world around us as awesome, as wonderful. So as we close up and wrap up, it's okay to acknowledge earthly fathers as somebody who imparted life to you physically and hopefully for you is committed to that life in some way, shape, or form. But realizing the honor and the glory that's due is really due to our number one father who created all of life who's passionate for you, who loves you, who sets an example for men on how to be a good father, who uses his own resources at his own expense and doesn't require anything other than, I mean, not even necessary love. I mean, think about that for a minute. We're going to close up here. That God pours out in this life, the sun, the rain, the fertile ground, the systems of he scrub. You know that God created a system to scrub the air of all toxins so that you could breathe fresh air? He pro- continually to provides for us whether we love him back or not. You say, well, God didn't answer this one prayer I prayed. Really? I mean, if my kids withdrew their love for me because I didn't let them go out on a date one time or they wanted to go play in the yard but they needed to do their chores first and I said no and they're like, I don't love you anymore, I'd be like, whatever. Just go do your homework. Right? I'm like, I'm not going to stop and be like, oh, you said you didn't love me. Get out of the house. Go fend for yourself, nine-year-old. Right? Like, <laughs> right? I'd be a terrible father. God sets an example for us as 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 men on how to be fathers, but really for all of us, he shows us his heart as a real dad, as a real father who loves you and is committed to you. And I challenge you today, as we close, to give God honor and glory where it's due. For the creation around him, for eternal life, for the life he's imparted and blown into, into your own nostrils, for the setting up a way that you could experience eternal life apart from him. Honor him by obeying and, and seeking after the way that he created things and the order of which he created things and systems which he created things. And said, when he calls one thing this and one thing that, believe that and walk in that way instead of creating your own way. That's how we honor God. And we say, God, I don't know. I don't understand it. I probably would have done something different. But then again, I'm not God. 
And so I'm going to honor and glorify you by restoring back, at least in my personal life, your original intent. And then just practice that to the people around you. Let's stand this morning. I'm just going to offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God the Father. Thank Him for the Creator that He is. Lord, we thank You this morning for You being revealed to us as as Father, as a mighty, powerful, creative God who created everything that we see. And You created it only for Your own pleasure, Your own desires, Your own thoughts and wills. You created all of this for You. And You poured who You are into this world around us. You poured who You are into us, into the planets, into the universe, And they shine forth your glory, the majesty of looking at the stars and its vastness and its bigness to the microscopic pieces of our DNA. Everything of it cries out in how awesome and glorified you are. And Lord, there are some of us, some of your creation has plagiarized your name. We've marred your creation, whether it be in our own lives and the lives of others or other created things. And Lord, I for one am grateful that you are passionate to restore creation back to its original author and creator and to free it from all the marrings, return it to the integrity for which you you create. In fact, your word says all creation groans for that day. Lord, I thank you most of all for your commitment to my life and the lives of the people in this room or watching this online that you love us deeply, that you created us for a reason and for a purpose and you poured yourself into us. And sin has marred that. But you've stayed committed to that and you've provided a way. And Lord, we seek to honor and glorify you today by, by seeking after your ways and not our own ways. To loving you by restoring your good name by, by, by allowing your word to permeate us and to lead us away from the sin that so easily entangles us. So Lord, we, we thank you today. We glorify your name. And we say, Lord, you are example for what it means to be a father. We praise you, love you, in your precious name. Amen.